Before I read uh, the scripture I'm going to be uh, preaching on this morning, I would like to just say a couple of uh, personal comments. Um, I do want to thank you for your prayers for my wife Joyce and my son Eric, who have uh, flown safely down to Ecuador. Uh, my son John is not here today. He took his girlfriend back to her, uh, a ride for her back to college, so I've been abandoned by all my family. Here I am. It is I only alone who comes here today. But I'm thankful to God for just the joy it is to be able to see how God has blessed and enriched our family in so many ways. And I thank you for your prayers and for uh, those of you who pray for my daughter, Catherine. She continues to uh, give thanks to God for the blessing it is to serve there in that, that, uh, that orphanage. Um, and also we'll be very excited to know that in just a short a while here, we're going to announce the fact that we are going to have an informational meeting and, and begin to look at the prospect of sending a, a, a team from our own church down to that orphanage and offer our hands and help the church there and uh, help touch lives there in uh, Quito, Ecuador. So thank you for your prayers, and hopefully they'll return. I hope and pray they'll return this coming Friday, at least Catherine and, I mean, sorry, Joyce and Eric. John should be back today, I hope. Anyway, all right. I can't keep track of who's doing what uh, this week. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the next portion of our text of Scripture this morning. Uh, We only went through half of it. I'd like to continue on on page 1180 in your pew Bible, Matthew 26. I'd like to pick up in verse 57 and continue reading to the end of the chapter. This is quite a large chunk of Scripture, but I would like to uh, uh, continue to move forward in our study so that we can uh, finish it out here uh, by the time of Easter. Beginning verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. But Peter also followed him at a distance, so as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find it, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. 
And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you shall deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I'm sure almost all of you have heard the phrase, and you can probably help complete it. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I wonder, what about you and me, though? Honestly speaking, when the going gets tough, what do we do? How do we respond? Which direction do we turn? Now, the issue of trouble and tough times and trials is inescapable. All of us have various forms of testings and trials in our lives, different forms of temptations. That's what Job observed in an accurate way in his own writings there in chapter 5 of his book. He noticed that trials are an inescapable dimension of life in this world. He said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Now, if I were to conduct a survey this morning and I were to go around individually and ask you to fill out questions and try to determine uh, what's going on in your life right now, I'm sure that we would determine very accurately and very uh, clearly and convincingly that there have either been in your life you've recently faced or you're facing right now or you will face in the near future a time of testing that you will face some form of affliction in your life, or you have been there, or you're in it right now. It could be relational in nature. Perhaps it has issues pertaining to your marriage. It has become very much a form of trial and testing in your life. It could be in the sense in which you are a single individual, and that becomes a form of testing or trial in your life. It could come in the form of financial hardship and trouble. Perhaps those unmet financial obligations that you have have now enslaved you and you feel as though you're in bondage because of debt. It could be in the physical realm. Perhaps your health is all of a sudden uh, worsened and you've received a recent diagnosis that has you quite concerned. Or it could be emotional in nature that you have recently suffered a loss and you're grieving and you're struggling with various forms of overwhelming uh, sense of angst even depression. Or perhaps it's even your vocational angle of your life. You're worried about losing your job, as so many people are in, in these uh, difficult economic times. Trials come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and they are nothing new. The issue that we must face in dealing with this particular issue is, how do we respond when they come? And to whom or to what do our hearts turn for help? That is the question we're going to look at. Now, before we get into our text, I want to just give another another little insight into this issue about trials and testings. And I'm going to do so looking at the children of Israel, just as an example. If you turn and look at Exodus chapter 15, we notice that uh, they faced one particular trial, in which they clearly had a physical trial. You and I perhaps can't even relate to this, but they had no food. 
And another situation, they had no water to drink. It's a very serious trial. This is not something you can just say, well, uh, just buckle up and keep going. How did they respond? Well, they responded, having been delivered from, Israel, from, from Egypt in bondage, they, they responded by, first of all, grumbling against Moses. And they complained against him. They complained to God. And that wasn't enough. Then they said, okay, we're demanding that we go back to Egypt. At least we had food. It wasn't the best food in the world, but that's where we're going to go. And we want to go back into Egypt. We want to go back into bondage. Worse yet, they got to the point where they're saying, Moses, we don't think you should be the right one leading us. We're going to kill you. We're going to stone you. That's how angry and frustrated and the, and the response of their hearts was, we are going to destroy and get rid of you. Now, I want to just give you a very important understanding of how Moses looked back on that particular incident and what happened over those 40 years. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, before they went into the promised land, Deuteron- he, he lays out for them an important insight. He says, you've got to learn this lesson about times of testings and trials. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses gives divine insight into why God permitted such difficulties and afflictions. Notice what he says. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. That you might humble, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In the same chapter later on, we look at verse 16. Notice another comment about testings. Deuteronomy 8.16, in the wilderness God fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you, watch this, to do good for you in the end. What an insight into times of testings. Helping them realize what? Look at how you responded inappropriately to those testings when God was trying to do a work in your life rather than drawing yourself closer to God. Here you are trying to run, your, run away or break the rules or do whatever you have to do, even taking matters in your own hands to destroy the leader that God gave him, Moses. Now our study this morning, I'd like to, to bring us now back to Matthew 26. And I want us to look at this text of Scripture and notice the different reactions among the different characters mentioned in the 26th chapter of Matthew, who are all facing various forms of trials and troubles. The one, of course, that we're going to focus on most significantly is Jesus Christ, because you'll notice that Jesus Christ was not immune to trials and testings. Interestingly, huh? He was not immune from very serious forms of suffering. And what stands out is Jesus' response in the midst of all these severe afflictions. Those who saw him up close, those who observed him under pressure, no doubt were so impressed with his inner strength, with the grace in which he responded, that is in such a stark contrast to the other people mentioned in chapter 26. So I'd like us to consider three different approaches now this morning in this text to trials, testings, and temptations. The first is this. We're going to look at the response of Judas and the high priest. Judas and the high priest. And what was their response? Well, just break the rules. Break the rules. First of all, read of Judas, the treasurer of Jesus' 12 disciples. And when he heard Jesus, as we said last week, predict again and again and again that Jesus was going to be crucified, Jesus told him, listen, 
I am going to be put to death. Judas began to calculate in his mind. And he realized that his plans and his intentions of trying to somehow gain power and gain riches through his close association with Jesus the Messiah was not going to work out the way he was expecting. His plans were coming to a complete uh, dead end. And so how did Judas respond? Well, for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Greeting someone with a kiss was a common way to express honor to someone, affection to someone, someone that you really cared about. And here he sells himself out and sells Jesus out, essentially, by walking up to him, identifying him. And again, in the backdrop of first century reading, if you look at this text and you understand the culture of the time about how they place such high value on hospitality and friendship and loyalty, here is Matthew's contemporary uh, generation reading his writings and saying to themselves, they would react with sheer horror at what he did. No one ever would kiss someone and then in so ways uh, betray them into the hands of his enemies. But that's exactly what Judas did. When I think of Judas, I think of someone who in 1 Timothy 9 is described as one who longed to get rich and how that person is susceptible to falling into temptation and into snares and many harmful desires that will plunge them into ruin and destruction. That, my friend, is Judas personified. So here in the text, Judas did what? He broke the rules of relationships. You don't do that. You don't kiss somebody and show that you have affection for them and that you are their friend and then turn them over to their enemies. And so he broke the rules of disciple teacher protocol, if you will. When he realized his dreams and his strong desires were not going to be fulfilled, he broke the bond of truth. He broke the bond of respect that he had with Jesus. And so he greeted Jesus as a dear friend and treated him as an enemy. Secondly, there's the high priest under this category of breaking the rules. Here is Caiaphas, the high priest, and the members of the council there. They're deeply threatened by Jesus because Jesus is highly popular at this point. It is Jesus who has recently made public statements in which he has exposed the hypocrisy of these people who are in these positions of power. And he has shown and manifested in numerous ways his superior wisdom to them. They've tried to stump him, and he's stumped them every time. And so how do they respond to this troubling threat to their positions of power? Well, they gathered together hurriedly at night, hearing that Judas now had done the, the dastardly deed, and they began the process of trying Jesus on that night with the goal of somehow getting him into the hands of the Romans who would finally execute him and destroy him once and for all. They conducted, let her be, an illegal trial. Here they joined Judas in breaking the rules. You see, a late night trial was not supposed to ever happen. It was illegal. And therefore you begin to notice with that 
statement right there, the fact that it's a nighttime trial, it is a long list of illegalities that occur during this phony baloney trial. Jesus was arrested with no formal charge. The trial was held, as I said, at night during, of all times, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in verses 59 to 62, we realize that they actively sought false testimony to charge Jesus with. And when they realized the trial was not going very well, what happened next? Here we read of the high priest, verse 63, he intervenes. He's not supposed to intervene. He is supposed to be an observer. He's supposed to let those things happen around him. But he gets involved. He demands that Jesus, on the basis of a solemn oath, you must answer this carefully worded question that was designed and set forth by Caiaphas for one purpose and one purpose only, to bring Jesus to the point of self-incrimination. Another breaking of the rules and the regulations. And so Jesus responds finally after being silent all that time, and provides Caiaphas with the opportunity that he sought. He accused Jesus of blasphemy. He demanded he put, be put to death. And Caiaphas further gave permission for more illegalities to take place involving what? Soldiers that are spitting on the subject. Those who were striking him and taunting him as a prisoner. Verse 67. And so when Caiaphas and Judas perceive that things are not going their way, that Jesus somehow was a threat to their own self-focused desires. They took things into their own hands and they broke the rules. They abused their privileges of power. And some people respond to trials by attempting to gain control over other people. Or they seek to create their own standards of right and wrong. It's very popular in today's world of saying, well, I have my own set of standards. You have your own set of standards. I have my rules. You have your rules. Who's to say what's right and wrong? It plays into the hands of people who say, I'll create what I think is right. And so we slip into the whole realm of pragmatism. Whatever seems to work, well, that's what's right. And they're convinced. Most of us become convinced. Sometimes when we're under various trials and difficulties, we become convinced in our own minds that my way is the best way. And therefore, anything that I purpose to do, whatever I choose to do, is right because I believe that my goals and my desires and my plans deserve to be fulfilled. Because I am at the center of the world. I want to be God. I want things to go my way. And so the end justifies the means. Do you find yourself susceptible in that direction? you like to bend the rules, create your own rules. You like to be the one who's in control. You like to be the one who says, I'll do what I do, and no one should hold me accountable because I like to be the one who defines what's right and what's wrong. That's a danger we all face, particularly in this world that seems to embrace all those things. Well, that was clearly one way of responding, unfortunately. But secondly, there's another Interesting response on the part of the 11 disciples who are facing their own crisis in this moment. And their response was to escape and just run away. Now, following the Passover meal, Jesus took those 11 disciples and he said, Come with me. And they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where they had a, a, uh, a number of olive trees planted there. And there are some olive trees there even now 
on this hillside there of the um, Mount of Olives. That's why they call it that. Uh, they are not original. Uh, they've been replanted. Everything was destroyed when the Romans were there. But anyway, this is across the valley from the temple complex. And here Jesus urged the inner core three, along with the rest who have just sort of stayed in the background. He brings the three with him, and he says to those Peter, James, and John, verse 38, keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. Now, we know it's late at night, and we know undoubtedly the effects of wine <laughs> and good food would have put these gentlemen in a difficult situation. It contributed, obviously, to their weariness. They are people who have weak flesh plus weariness. I think we all can relate to that, can't we? We mean well, we want to do what's right, but we find ourselves just exhausted. And so Jesus reiterated again the importance of keeping watch, of praying at that hour. Look at verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, how weak is the flesh. And Jesus knew that only a few hours, in only a few hours, the greatest test in the lives of these men would take place. And his comments were designed to help them understand their vulnerability to intimidation and fear. And they needed to join him in seeking God's help. And Jesus knew his followers were about to become vulnerable, like sheep with no shepherd. And he knew they would soon be forced to declare their allegiance, their public allegiance, either to him or to reject him publicly. Now, I'm sure that most of us would have done the same thing, would we have not? We put ourselves in that situation. Even though we're warned in Scripture that trials and testings are inevitable, we find ourselves, in a spiritual sense, sort of sleeping, at ease, dozing, not very alert. I urge you to look in some later time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, speak about the importance of being spiritually alert. That we're not to be those who are walking around as if we're just taking it easy and sort of dozing through life. But we need to keep praying. As followers of Jesus, oftentimes we, like those disciples, were sort of clueless about our own vulnerability. And we have a distorted perception of our abilities. We minimize our susceptibility to being deceived or drawn away into sin. We think that we can handle things on our own. And rather than crying out to God for grace and strength, we prefer to walk through the path of life seeking the path of least resistance. Whatever is the easiest way to make it through, that's the road I'm going to be walking on. And that's what these disciples did. Instead of the path of what? Self-denial, the path of self-control. So the disciples did not understand the important issues that spiritual battle, all spiritual battle, involves at a fundamental level prayer. Seeking God in prayer. Asking for help. Realizing we cannot do anything on our own. Ephesians 6.18 says that is what spiritual battle involves. It means that praying at all times in the Spirit for all the saints. Praying for ourselves and praying for those around us. Well, that was their first struggle was they were weak. 
They struggle with their weakened flesh and their weariness. But notice there's another response they made, and this is probably more likely for many of us. They were ready to fight or flee. The disciples immediately confronted this, they were immediately confronted by this band of soldiers who came to arrest Jesus after Judas kissed Jesus. And Peter attempted at that moment to say, well, if they've come with various clubs and spears and their swords, they're not going to take us without some defense. And so Peter, I think, in a noble way, with tremendous amount of courage at that moment, tries to attack one of these guys. I think he was going after his head. I think he was trying to behead this guy. The guy was missing and uh, sort of twisting out of the way. But Jesus reminded him, verse 54, that this arrest must happen. It was part of his plan. And then you read, after Jesus made that statement and very much quelled any thought of using violence to defend him, verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. They didn't want to have to face being arrested. They didn't want to have to deal with the fact that they themselves would be drawn into this matter. And so Peter, later on, follows Jesus at a distance, wants to make sure exactly what's going on here. And he, three times, as we read at the end of the chapter, denies Peter, denies his Savior in the courtyard of the high priest. Despite all their pledges to undying loyalty and, and devotion, each disciple caved into fear and intimidation. Each one responded to a time of testing by either fighting or fleeing. They ran from Christ rather than remain close to Him. And fear strengthened its grip on them, and their witness was silenced. If you follow the disciples the next several days, you find them still, even days after these events. Where are they? They are afraid, and they are seeking refuge behind a locked door in an upper room. John 20. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, some of us obviously deal with our fears by running away. We run, and we run to try to somehow think that we can handle it ourselves. We run away from God when we encounter hardship, when we deal with heavy responsibilities that weigh us down, when we look at the face of potential failure that might be staring us square in the face. We look at the everyday struggles we find refuge in troubling times by just running away. Many of us find the place that we turn to is food. Others of us look and run to entertainment as an escape. It will get my mind and my emotions off of things that are difficult to deal with. I'll go into somebody else's experience vicariously. Others of us use internet pornography or actually involved in some illicit forms of sex and their, or, or alcohol or illegal drugs, or many of us who escape those pitfalls, we find ourselves just immersing ourselves in busyness, in, in working more and more and more, giving ourselves to work, 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 work as an escape from dealing with things we don't want to have to deal with and face. And when we have had to deal with confronting difficult people, or confronting the sins of our past, or when we've had to confront the ridicule of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, many of us find that we too, like those other disciples, we'd rather run than face things square on and deal with them through the power 
and grace of Jesus Christ. One of the things I'm convinced that what, if you need to know the full story here, you need to understand also that Jesus did restore Peter. He walked him through all those three denials and walked him through three pledges of having him affirm his love for Christ and he restored him to ministry. And the wonderful thing about this passage is that those who run, Jesus Christ can welcome them back because of his grace. That Jesus wanted them to be close to him during those hours. That's why he's saying, pray with me. He wanted to know that they were walking through this thing together. And the problem is many of us, we tend to run off by ourselves, which is the worst place for us to be when we go through times of testing and trials. Well, that's uh, enough of the difficult or the uh, responses that oftentimes we see in our lives. But let's look at the response that our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Please do not miss this. Point number three, here's the response of Jesus. He entrusted himself to God. In reading the comments that Jesus made in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get the idea of an immense, immense struggle that he underwent. This trial that he faced. Look at verse 38. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Verse 37. Jesus indicates that he is also deeply distressed. Now, we need to be clear. He's not afraid of dying. You must understand that. It has nothing to do with Jesus' fear of dying. Countless people have faced death with calmness of heart. Jesus' distress was due to the weight of sin that he began to feel as the scapegoat. He began to contemplate the horrors of bearing the load of sin-bearing. He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He was about to have reckoned to him all the sins of those who he came to save. And he cried out to his Father in prayer. He was longing for another way to accomplish God's plan of redemption. And yet he knew ultimately there is no other way. I find it interesting that the word Gethsemane actually means oil press. And there are many of those in Israel today. You can look at different ways in which they try to extract oil out of these very hard olives and the amount of weight that needs to be pushed upon them in order to extract that oil. And here I find it interesting that the word Gethsemane, oil press, is a reminder that no one, no person has ever before or ever will endure the intensity of pressure like Jesus the Lamb of God at that moment, who took upon Himself the sins of the world. But praise God, will you notice here carefully that Jesus was tested in all things, and yet He never sinfully responded. He did not run away. He did not break the rules according to 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And although He was deserted, Although he was forsaken by all of his disciples, he was betrayed by Judas in the ultimate act of disrespect. He was uh, mistreated by the authorities who clearly broke endless rules in his trial. He humbled himself and did what? He drew close to his father in prayer. John 16.32, Jesus said, You disciples will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. 
he never lost sight of the fact that God was with him, that God would help him, that God in his love for him, his eternal love that they shared from eternity. It is because of these things that Jesus yielded his will to the will of his Father in earnest prayer. He refused to be diverted to what, from what he came to do. And Jesus also refused to be defended by those who somehow could have done so militarily, whether it be angels or whether it been his own disciples. Because he knew the weapons of his kingdom are not the kind of swords and spears that are used by men. He surrendered to the prophecies of God. In the midst of false accusations, illegal proceedings, and severe mistreatment, Jesus did not retaliate. He did not attempt to defend himself or destroy those who carried out these severe acts of injustice. Rather, he suffered patiently. He suffered silently. He endured harsh mistreatment. It reminds me of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. At the right moment, he affirmed his true identity, and he defined himself by Scripture, not by the accusations of other people, but his claim to deity and his messiahship meant that he would bear the brunt of the world's hatred because he is the light of the world. And people hate the light. They love to hide in the darkness. Now, why am I saying all this? My friend, hear this point out at the end here. Jesus' heart was revealed in the midst of his greatest pressure and testings. And his heart was what? His heart was filled with a love for the Father. A love for the Father that said, yes, I'm going to yield. I'm going to yield myself to your purposes and your will, which we obviously both share in. And yet he's saying, I'm yielding myself in this subjugation of myself and to your sovereign plan, even though I know it will cause me to suffer unspeakable horrors of bearing sin and undergoing the wrath of God. And yet he says, I love you as the Father. I will yield to you. I will serve the purposes that we have agreed upon. And he knows that the love the Father has for him will remain unbroken. He communed with God the Father. He pours out his heart to the Father in prayer. He never lost sight of the Father. If we knew and were convinced of the love that God has for us in the midst of temptings and trials and testings, would we not come to the Father more often? Would we not come to Him and ask Him to help us if we were convinced of His love for us? The whole 17th chapter of John's Gospel is the intimate prayer of Jesus interceding to the Father. Trials did not prevent him from communing with the Father. It drove him deeper into that reliance upon his Father and communion with the Father. Oh, what an insight that is for you and me, my friend. So often we want to deal with life on our own, to think that we have strength in ourself and to run away from God rather than running to him in the midst of our testings and trials. Another key insight here I want us to notice with Jesus regarding his unmatched love. He had love for the Father, but you notice also that he continued to relate to those around him out of a heart of love. It's incredible. 
Here is Jesus receiving all this mistreatment and he restrains himself from what he was righteously permitted to do as the just judge. He could have slain so many people with just a mere spoken word. And yet he restrains himself and humbles himself and takes upon himself this hatred and all of this this, uh, evil that now is being placed upon him. And he is dying for those who hated him. It is Christ who never abandoned his disciples, those 11 disciples. Here he is speaking to them, offering to say, listen, we've got to stay together and pray together. He's trying to shore them up and encourage them in their midst of testings and trials. What a heart of love. He's not concerned so much about himself only. He's concerned about those with him. Trying to help them maintain their strength with each other before God. He never abandoned his 11 disciples, even though they abandoned him. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost, John 13 says. And so what do we learn from this, my friend? We learn that Jesus endured a far greater testing or trial than you'll ever endure in your life. That testing or trial did not drive him away from God. It drove him closer to the Father. He did not break the rules. He submitted himself in all perfect righteousness. He did what was pleasing. The fact is that we can have hope because we as people who run away from and escape from things that we shouldn't do and that we try to break the rules in our attempts to try to deal with the trials and testings of our lives, we have hope because Jesus Christ, out of his love for us, has said, I've done it all for you. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we continue to reflect upon the wonder of Christ who shines so brilliantly in this passage of Scripture, we can't help but think, might there be some here today, Lord, who would see their own response to the trials and testings has been that they have constantly gone their own way, that they have broken the rules, that they have stepped over the line, they have taken matters into their own hands, And they've raised, in a sense, Lord, collectively we've raised our fist to you and said that we want to be our own mini-gods, our own mini-kings. I pray, Lord, if there are some here today, Lord, who have never recognized that foolishness and have realized what a serious offense it is to run away from God and to break His rules and to stand under His judgment, I pray that even today they would flee to Christ, the one who died for lawbreakers like us, the one who gave his life to pay for the sins of those of us who have transgressed your law. I pray that they might repent, have a change of mind, and turn in a new direction and submit to Christ and trust Christ and and hold on to Christ and rely upon him and what he's done for them, that they might be made right with you even this day. Lord, for others of us who flee and run away, who foolishly think we can handle the difficulties of life in our own strength, who oftentimes withdraw from people around us and suffer in silence and never ask for prayer and never seek you in prayer and never humble ourselves before you in the midst of trials, but we become embittered and angry and frustrated and question you. And Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us, forgive us, turn our hearts, we pray, toward Christ 
Help us to see that in our, even though we run away, Christ welcomes us with open arms, saying, I've died for you. I gave myself for you. Even though you turn your back on me, I will never turn my back on you. Lord, I pray that you might show us anew and afresh the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. Help to open our eyes to see the greatness of his love for sinners like us who find ourselves running away from him again and again. Help us, Lord, to find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to magnify the one who was tempted in every way, tested in every way like we are, and yet he never sinned. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our hope. Thank you that you are the one who triumphed over all of our foolish failures. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.